Hey everybody, this is Phil Town and we're live on Facebook. And this is Danielle Town. You forgot about me because you're so excited about being live on Facebook. I want to let everybody know Jeez. that we're live on Facebook. It's so exciting to know Let's that. Let's start over. Hi, this is Invested and this is Danielle Town. Oh yeah, hi. And we're live on Facebook. Let's just skip you. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't like it. <laughs> so this is the Invested Podcast, by the way. And we are talking about how to invest the way Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger do it, the way the best investors in the world do it, and the way I do it, and I'm teaching my daughter Danielle how to do it. That's true, and by the way, for everybody listening and not watching, like, totally fine. <laughs> Check us out if you want. You can still listen to this podcast. Um, and we are on the subject of gurus. Yeah, and you can see by how We've churned up this intro. Yeah, we don't really. We don't do a lot of live. We don't have, well, we do live every time, but we don't have a lot of intro mm, goodness because we change it up every time, which really entertains me. Actually. So, what are we talking about? We're talking about gurus, Dad. Gurus. And we're talking about, in particular, Monesh Pabrai. Yes, so we've been talking about gurus for a number of weeks now. Before Christmas, we talked about how to track what they're buying, gurus being very large investors who invest in the rule one Warren Buffett value investing style. And you can actually see what companies they buy because they have to file publicly with the SEC if they have a fund of more than $100 million. So we get to track what they're doing. Now it's late and it's incomplete, but we still get to track what they're doing, which is pretty cool. Yeah, late means 90 days late or so. They're gonna have to report every quarter to the SEC. So they typically do that within about 45 days of the end of the quarter, which means they could have bought some stocks 45 days ago. Mm -hmm. And some might be as much as 135 days old. Yeah. Um, and it just sort of stays in that ratio every quarter. And if anybody out there knows Monesh Prabhai or uh, Joel Tillinghast, who wrote the book we talked about a little bit briefly, <laughs> or um, Alan Meacham, uh -huh. We would love to get these guys on this podcast. So if you know them and can push them a little bit, we'll be in touch with them. Nudge them that this is a good podcast and they should do it. I think Guy Spear had a good time with us. I think Guy did too. That's <laughs> <laughs> really good. So we're on to Monash. Now, why Monash Pabrai? Why Monash Pabrai? Why Monash Pabrai, Dad? Well, first, because Monash is a brilliant, brilliant investor. Mm. Um, he talks a lot about his investing strategy. You okay? Sometimes I shed hair. <laughs> well, Just accept it. You look fine. It's the feminine condition. You look good, totally good. Thanks. So Monash is, one of the things I, I love about Monash is he promotes the idea of investing rule one style strategy. Warren Buffett 101, Charlie Munger 101. He's very big fan of Warren Buffett and very out front and, and, and about that. He and Guy Spear put together a million dollars on a bid to have lunch with Warren Buffett and they won. And they got to go spend a, or, an hour or two with Warren. And um, Monash has- And he wrote a great book called The Dondo Investor. Phenomenal book. So I if think you're is looking what, for books, that's a huge, great book. I think that's really what put him on the map for non-investor types yeah. to, to know about him. I think you're right. Great story and, uh, and really, a great explanation for how you invest the way we do it. So we all are synced up and talking about the same kind of investing strategies. And we met Monesh at Charlie Munger's annual me uh, Daily Journal meeting um, a little over a year ago, a little less than a year ago. Gosh, was it that long ago? I know, it's amazing. And I'm looking forward to seeing him again. That's coming up. That's right. Soon. I remember recording 
This is how long we've been doing this. Are you coming this. back from Zurich for that, by the way? Are you going to do it again? We need to talk about that, because I was just going to say, I remember recording a podcast about our experience there yeah. in San Diego. We're sitting here in San Diego doing this right now. And it just is like, whoa, that was a year ago. Wow. That's pretty amazing. I mean, a room full of millionaires and wannabe millionaires paying homage to some of the greatest investors of all time. So um, let's talk about one of them, Monash Pabrai. Phenomenal rates of return. Um, for quite some time there, Monash was ticking along at about, I think, over 25% to his investors wow. for a long period of time. And then you go to dips, you know, and it goes along with the stock prices going down and then coming back. And I'm going over, I'm kind of looking at my computer here because what I'm doing is I'm going over to our guru section on rule1investing.com and pulling up the latest uh, and greatest for what Monash's portfolio looks like as of uh, just Q3 2017, because Q4 isn't out yet. Okay. So Q4 will be coming. So this is accurate as of the end of uh, September last year. So you can see there's a lag, right? I mean, that's Total October, lag, November, December. Yeah. and. Um, so we're, we're a little over 90 days lag here. Uh, and he may have changed this substantially, but um, what you're going to hear about his portfolio is really a shock, actually. Lay it on it me. might be. Okay, wait. Does he have the requirement of 50% or more of his portfolio in five stocks? He actually has 100% of his portfolio in five stocks. And he meets the requirement. <laughs> <laughs> You won't see that too often. <laughs> there are there are basically no practice shares in here. Crazy. At all. All right. And the largest chunk that he's got is ballpark 86% of his portfolio. Why are you saying it like that? Why, why doesn't it just say 86%? Because I had to do the math. Okay. Why do you have to do the math? Because it's not a stock that he's got 86% of his money in. And I'm ballparking, so if I'm wrong, Monash, I apologize, but I'm ballparking what I think his total portfolio is. I think his total portfolio is about a billion dollars. That's what he's working with. And I take that because there's a joke floating around about confused. Monash's portfolio. Is The joke goes that he was at a hedge fund conference with his wife, and uh -huh. a guy comes up and says, how many people does it take you to manage a billion dollar portfolio? And Monish's wife said, point one. <laughs> In other words, he doesn't work very hard. Okay, so assuming his portfolio is a ballpark of a billion dollars, and there's no way I can know for sure, but assuming that's the case, he has $136 million as of the end of Q3 in stocks, which means 86% of it, ballpark, is in cash. Oh, I see what you're doing here. We have not yet discussed this no, at all. Cash is an asset. You're coming around to it in a very backwards yeah, way. Yeah, kind of floating back What you're there. saying mm. is that there is actually another piece of information to get from these filings, which is how invested are they? Right. How invested are they? And it's really tough to know for sure because they don't have to report the full size of their portfolio. All they have to do is report what they have in stocks. Mm -hmm. Now, also misleading is the fact that they don't have to report stocks they're short on. Right, that we've talked about. Right. 
So that could be a big chunk. He might be short the market all over the place. I don't know. Typically, he's not a sh he doesn't do short investing. I just know that. But yeah, I mean, my impression of like value investor types is that they stay away from short positions. But not that doesn't all, mean all. they all do. Yeah. No, there are definitely some people who who have aggressive short positions all the time, and who are, you know, definitely rule one style investors. But Monash isn't one of them. And knowing that, and ballparking his portfolio at a billion, for all I know, it could be two billion, and this is even more aggressive, mm -hmm. or it might be less than that, I don't know, but I'm ballparking it, that he's got about 86% of his money in cash right now, which is gigantic, but compared to Warren Buffett, who has over 105 billion in cash right now, uh, you know, 800 million isn't that big a deal. Of course, for a portfolio of a billion dollars, it's pretty big chunk. I mean, it's a really major point, and you said it like it's just nothing. Hmm. To notice how much of their portfolio is invested, like that's that's the headline. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. And that I cash doesn't show I can't believe I didn't think up. of this already. I feel like on all these tools, I something. And, and Guru Focus, Guru, uh, Data Roma, Whale Watch, my tools, nobody's got the portfolio size. No. So you don't know what's short and you don't know what's in cash. Um, Buffett, you do have a sense of it because he has to produce, uh, his, or he wants to produce his portfolio in the Berkshire filings every year. And you got a sense of what he owns that's a private company. He doesn't short stocks either, but he owns a lot of private companies. So we're just going to have to speculate a little bit. Alan Meacham, which we talked about last time, mm -hmm. um, has also about a billion dollars, but he's pretty much fully invested. That's his strategy, to stay fully invested. Guy Spear likes to stay fully invested. We talked to Guy about that. He, he just thinks there's more risk as a fund manager not being fully invested than there is uh, of just owning stocks that are gonna go down. Mm. He's okay with that because he's a fund manager. And when you think about it, fund managers, as long as they're going down less than the market as a whole are going to come out smelling like a rose. Their investors understand that things go up and down. Mm. So Guy's view is, hey, I'd rather be down 20, 25% with the market down 40. I'm still going to be a hero and stay fully invested so I don't miss these market run-ups where I'm really owning companies that are priced well above their value. I mean, I'm not sure that's his view. I think that's your interpretation of his of advice to like a new beginner investor. Yeah, I, that's yeah. my interpretation of, of how he's putting this together in his mind. And we'll have to get him back on here and see yeah, if I'm accurate. Yeah, we should ask him, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> he, may, he may have a whole nother take on it, but so that's, you, that's my sense of it. So you're seeing that Monish Pabrai is, what did you say, like 12% of his portfolio is actually invested in stocks? 14%. Like? 14%. Yeah. 14% in stocks and half of it's in Google. <laughs> <laughs> so when you look at this tool, you look at Monash, if you didn't know that he's working with a lot of capital, you would see that he has four stocks and 49.9% of it is in uh, Alphabet, Google. Okay, I wanna go through them. Number one, hmm. Alphabet. Alphabet. And Google. you said 49? 49%. 49. Yep. What's next? And the next one is POSCO, um, where he has 30% of the portfolio, 31% of the portfolio. POSCO oh, is a steel company. Is? Yeah. Steel company. Steel company in Korea, actually. Oh. And having watched Monash invest for a while, I know he got into POSCO quite some time ago. And it isn't a happy camper investment for him. 
it's gone down substantially from I think where he got in. He's had to hold on. So he's sitting on it. Um, other people like Charlie Munger uh, got out, uh, POSCO and so on. Okay. Um, next one is 12%, and that's uh, Southwest Airlines, oh. which is one of the airline companies that Buffett bought into when Buffett decided, hey, it's time to go do airlines. Mm -hmm. And I think Monash was right there with him. Um, but instead of buying Delta, United, and American, he looked at these four companies and said, you know, the one that's really got the moat is Southwest. Mm -hmm. Um, because they've got the price moat. The rest of these guys don't compete on price, it's per se. They don't want to compete on price. Southwest intends to do that. And then the fourth company is Berkshire Hathaway, where he has yeah, a relatively small position, actually, 72,000 shares for him. Um, and that's uh, roughly 7.7%, roughly 8%. So those four companies comprise $136 million of invested capital, out of ballpark, a portfolio of a billion. So, uh, my conclusion is he's camped out, yeah. waiting patiently. Yeah. Which is the hardest thing to do. That is the hardest thing to do for a guy who is got a lot of people who are used to seeing high rates of return to sit in cash while this market rockets off. I mean, to be fair, that's what he says to do in his book. He says, wait, 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 wait. Don't do anything till you know. Like it's better to let them go by. Like he reiterates it over and over. And I guarantee you, so he's you, walking his talk. He would agree with me if I said easy said, but hard to do. Yeah. Um, much easier for you guys, by the way. If you're doing your own investing, it's much easier for you to maintain that discipline of not investing when you're not sure. Uh, partly because. You know, fund managers are more, more confident, right? We're a little more afraid when we're starting, so we're a little hesitant. Go with the hesitation and be patient. But also, you don't have anybody pounding on your door and calling you up and saying, what are you doing? What are you doing, right? I mean, Warren Buffett says it like this. He's like, you're, you, you're standing there at the batter's box with your bat on your shoulder. Pitch after pitch is coming by you. And the people in the bleachers are, selling, are, are screaming, swing, you bum. It's how bum. That's how Buffett put it. Swing, you bum. So to, to not swing when the people in the bleachers are yelling swing, it's hard. Yeah. But nobody's yelling at you guys. They're not yelling at you. So much easier to I not mean, I swing. I don't really feel that sorry for you. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should. Wait till you get Poor it. you. Yeah. Oh, Where's the no. empathy, Gene? Oh, somebody wants you to do something. Oh, oh No Lord. empathy whatsoever. No, not really. So these guys I mean, at least we that. have some advantage. I actually appreciate that. It is a huge advantage um, to, to, to be able to be as patient as we have to be. Um, and I think, honestly, I think Guy Spear deals with that by staying pretty fully invested. Then you avoid the consequences of doing what Monesh is doing, which is sitting in cash and having people know it, right? Particularly, I mean, shoot, man, um, our options portfolio went up roughly 30% last year. Our, like your fund, like you Like mine, yeah. And, you know, it's, it, it, it's better than a rounding error, but it was only about 25% of the fund. And so you go up 30% with 25% of the fund, you're at 7.5% return. In a market that went up 17. Oh, okay. You see what I'm saying? Sort of. So if you don't have the I whole, so Monesh has got, you know, 14% invested and it does very, very well, everything's gone up, woohoo. Except it's 
almost a rounding error. If it went up 20%. Yeah, I got you, on the he, whole thing. On the whole thing, it represents, I don't even know what that 14 is, maybe a, a, a sixth of the fund, or seventh seventh of the fund? Yeah, I don't know. Whatever, the math is. Uh, divide don't look at me. Divide seven into 20 <laughs> and you end up with a fund with 3%. <laughs> that's not great. When the market's up 17, that's when your investors are going banging on the table. And everybody remembers, you remember the big short, right? The, the movie with the investors pounding down this guy's door, yeah. Michael Burry's door, yeah. screaming at him. Yeah. Like, what are you, like, investors can become very irate when everything's going one way and you're not. That's why people jump from buildings when there's a stock market crash. It's yeah. terrible. Yeah, they take it a little seriously. Okay, so in that situation, I feel a little bit sorry. For okay, you. good. So let's take a look at his, uh, one of the things we didn't talk about with Alan is we have a, a button that we can click that says activity, which tells you. What does we have a button mean? Oh, we on my website. On rule1investing.com. There we go. <laughs> Shameless plug, I like to way. be clear. <laughs> so, and you can do this on lots of websites. So Guru Focus, Data Roma, all that. So um, on this, it shows the activity. The last time Monash bought a stock, was roughly this time last year. I understand what this activity button does. It shows you when's the last quarter he bought anything. But wouldn't pretty much everybody except for just happens to be this one guy buy stocks every quarter? No, that's the whole point. Um, a lot of times these guys are sitting tight and they're not doing any new activity for quarter after quarter after quarter. Really? So that'd be really important to know also, not just what do they own, but when, when are they moving into the market and when are they not moving into the market? Yeah. That's very helpful, I think. I mean, we talked about that with like following the progression of what they're doing and needing to have that kind of timeline information in order to right. really follow what's happening. It's really hard to tell what's happening without knowing that. But I didn't know that there were times that like the gurus that you follow actually do nothing on the regular pretty regularly do nothing. So, I mean, remember that the, the strategy that Buffett talks about is to be patient to the point of laziness bordering on sloth. So if you're really tracking what, we, what we're saying there, that means a lot of the time you're doing nothing. Yeah, but you also said how terrible it is when you do nothing and all these people start yelling at it you. It is terrible. <laughs> okay. Swing you bum, all swing right. you bum. Okay. So you have this pressure coming that Warren calls institutional imperative. Mm -hmm. You know, go now, this quarter, be brilliant, my son. And, and that is exactly how 98% of the fund managers, including everybody managing anything you guys are investing in, that's how they operate. They're operating based on knowing that the pressure is to do something brilliant. It's not just coming from the people in the bleachers, it's also coming from their boss. Right? They've been hired out of Goldman Sachs or they work at Goldman to, to do these genius investing. And they are under this tremendous pressure to outperform the market every single quarter. Mm -hmm. Well, Buffett, Pabri, Spear. You thought they were just dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I have really learned a lot about that. That was a really huge insight that helped Thank me you. so much. You know, it's one thing to say that people are irrational and that's the common way you know, Alan Greenspan would talk about it, or 
maybe Schiller would say, or, or, or Toller, or any of these guys that are in, in behavioral economics, they would talk about it as not rational behavior, or biased behavior, or you know, thinking fast behavior. But in fact, you've got such an insight, and it's amazing. I've never heard that insight come from anyone else. Hmm. Now, all these geniuses who are studying the market, they're standing up above the trees. You got down into it, and they see, oh, here's the forest, and it's, sometimes it's irrational. Well, why would these people be irrational? They're very smart people. Yeah. So the idea that they're just going to be irrational because sometimes people under pressure get irrational, that's not really true. Um, what I think is really true is what you said, the way you said it. They're very rational. What they're yeah, doing makes they're, total sense. But people are ignoring the incentives and the disincentives that they're living under. Brilliant. I've never seen that in anybody's work. <laughs> okay. It's so interesting. Why maybe, I not? Should, maybe I should write a book. Yeah, huh? maybe you should write a book about it. <laughs> so here's. Speaking of, mm -hmm. we have a special announcement tomorrow. Oh, we're going live with we're an gonna announcement. We're going to have a special bonus yeah. podcast and special announcement tomorrow, Wednesday, January. Let me make sure I got the date right. Wednesday, January 10th. And we will get the time as soon as we have it. We're not so able to tell them the time? Oh, shoot. We don't know yet what we time we're going to shoot it. Because of factors. Because we're going to another city. <laughs> that is true. Uh huh? <laughs> so check social media, check the website. Like, it'll be there. Yeah. And it's tomorrow. It's tomorrow. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, get ready. Okay. So this is <laughs> we have to coming get on up. an airplane. This is coming up fast. <laughs> so here, here we got Monash who has four total stocks, but actually hasn't bought anything, or done any activity, I should say, since the first quarter of 2017, and has no buys in the last quarter. Wait, okay, so the what we were just talking about was third quarter of 2017. Right, so and now you're saying then. we're back to, he didn't do anything since first quarter of 2017. Right, So really this. he just didn't do anything for the, the second quarter. No, worse than that. In the first quarter, the activity that he did was to sell off some positions. Oh, all right. He eliminated Seritage completely. Hmm. So that was one of his positions. Now this one, just full disclosure, I own this stock. So, and so does Warren Buffett. Buffett owns about 10% of this company. Um, so does Eddie Lampert, it's another ruler. Uh, Bruce Berkowitz, there's a lot of people in Seritage. Mm -hmm. And Monash was in it. And then he noticed that Sears was starting to have problems with some of its stores as Amazon started taking over more and more of the market of retail. And he decided that the wise thing to do would be to exit Seritage, take a small profit over his original position, and, um, and then get out of the way of the potential Sears bankruptcy. Because if Sears goes bankrupt, mm. then it'll be difficult for Seritage to collect on the rent. Seritage manages or owns, owns the a uh, lot of Sears real estate that Sears stores About have. half of it, or maybe not even that much, but 250 some Sears stores they own. Yeah. So if Sears is bankrupt, um, it's gonna interfere with cash flow, or it could interfere with cash flow. And also, he may be concerned that Lampert and Berkowitz, who are huge shareholders of, of Sears, and shareholders of Seritage may have a position in a Sears bankruptcy that does not benefit everybody else in Sears. It just benefits them. And we've seen that game before. Yeah. So I don't think they're gonna do that. I think these are more honorable guys than that. But 
Um, and I'm staying with Seritage because I don't think the impact on Sears is going to be that severe, and I could be wrong. I think we did a whole episode on that. I think we did. We talked about it a bunch. But here's, here's, here's the activity from 2017. None except to sell, at least through the third quarter. None hmm. at all. So he hasn't bought any companies. Or he's shorting like crazy. Or he's shorting like crazy. And Monash doesn't short that I'm aware of. Maybe occasionally, but not in a big way. But he could be. All um, right. So now so we have big, the picture. That's, a, that's an amazing picture. He what just missed that? out on one of the best years of the growth of stocks in American history. And so did I. Well, so did a lot of people. So, well, but a lot of people who are just, I don't want to say brain dead, but uninformed investors, have not spent a lot of time <laughs> working on it, are doing just what you know their financial advisors are saying to do, stay fully invested, dollar cost average. Those investors have done really, really well this last year. Yeah. They, they're making that look like a really smart way to go. What you do know? you think about that? I think that they're gonna pay the price of that sort of uh, non-involvement. I think that non-involvement is going to take us through a pretty major churn in the near future. I could be wrong. Trump is doing some extraordinarily aggressive things to get the economy moving. I think people are becoming more optimistic about the mm -hmm. future. Wages, for the first time, New York Times is reporting, are starting to go up in, in the Northeast. They, I mean, there's some really amazing things happening, and I think we've got a lot of cash sitting out there that's gonna start coming into the country now. Two trillion may be repatriated as a result of the tax changes. Um, man, four trillion is sitting in US banks. If they start to lower the uh, regulations on bank holdings and what they can do with that money, they may start lending it more aggressively. Mm. I mean, we could start to see inflation kick in. The market could go through this wild ride straight up. But these are very disciplined investors. Buffett's in cash, Pabri's in cash, I'm in cash. Not everything, but a lot. And that discipline is something that takes a long time, I think, to realize that over a long run, that's how you win. If you're in all the time, you're gonna pay the price. And you know that, that's okay in the long run, if you've got the long run. But for all the baby boomers that are out there, I gotta tell you, you don't have the long run. You know, you're looking at retirement now, and 10 years of zero return is gonna really hurt. Right? If this market starts going down like crazy, that's gonna hurt even worse. So I don't wanna scare anybody to, by, by saying that I have some sort of crystal ball. I really don't. I, I think there's a very good chance, better than 50-50, this market's gonna go up a lot in the next year. I mean, it's sort of a weird, I was gonna say it's a really hard situation, but it's sort of a weird, like, good difficult situation because it's going up, it's not going down. So right. a lot of people are making money from that, people feel optimistic, there's right. just more money in the economy, like those are all good things. But as an investor looking for a discrepancy between price and value, it's really hard when the right. market is overpriced essentially overall. And that's why all these people are in cash, including you. Right. So it's like kind of this weird conundrum of like, yay economy? <laughs> like you don't want to hope for a crash. No. But also like how do you deploy your funds in a situation where you really can't find that differential that you need? Well, I don't know um, where Monash is going, but I'm going to take that question really seriously. And I'll tell you, I'm deploying funds into special 
opportunities (laughs) that come along. Special opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what else you can call them, but you sort of dig into the weeds and... You mean like non-stock? Non-stock. Non-stock Other assets that I find um, are undervalued for one reason or another. Mm -hmm. And in one case, you know, there's certain tax advantages to a certain investment. And as a result of those tax advantages, the investment is very, very cheap, Mm. right? So there can be um, legislative uh, processes going on that actually make an investment on sale that would otherwise not look like it's on sale. Mm. So I mean, I'm looking for opportunities where the risk is very, very low and I have a very good opportunity to make at least 15% a year or better. I think this one special situation we're looking at is 50% in the course of a year, looks pretty doable. Um, So we're gonna try to deploy some of the capital in other places. We also do um, very low risk, high probability options trades that uh, we do that match into the portfolio. Um, stuff called rule one puts, rule one calls, things that we do that that allow us to use some of our capital uh, to a certain amount. But I mean, if you run in a billion dollar portfolio, you can't do that kind of stuff. It's just things that small investors can do. You know, we don't have a big portfolio like that. So um, we can do some of those things and generate, you know, ballpark market returns maybe for the whole portfolio with most of it sitting in cash. And that's what we're trying to do anyway. It's weird. It's like we need an irrational exuberance strategy. And there's always one. Of course there is. There's always something. It's called buy stocks until they go down. (laughs) (laughs) And well, that is one. That's not the one I'm thinking of. You know, I'm thinking of like, for example, in 1999 when 1998, Greenspan said the market's irrationally exuberant. And you have the NASDAQ at 5,000, you've got all these tech stocks going through the roof. Everything's very expensive. But Walmart wasn't hmm. really very expensive. So you, you can always find something. And, and Buffett's stock, by the way, in 1998, 1999, Berkshire Hathaway was pretty arguably on sale um, because it wasn't one of these fast growing companies. So if you dig in the weeds, you, there's usually something you can find. Clearly right now is really extraordinary on how difficult it is. Uh, One of the reasons is that there's usually a relationship between the Wilshire, uh, which is all the stocks, four or 5,000 stocks in the market, the value of those stocks um, divided by the uh, GDP, the gross national product. When you divide those two, and we've talked about this, we divide this into this, the GDP into the Wilshire, and it's, the answer is 60%, that's a great time to buy stocks. They're likely to go up. And when you do that and the answer is 120%, that's not a great time to buy stocks Mm -hmm. um, because they're likely to go down. Do you know what we're at now? Well, the average is around 70 to 80, and we're at 155, so we're 2x the average right now, which is extremely high. So we're playing with fire there. The Schiller PE is averaging 16 or so over the course of 140 years. It's running 32, and it's only been there three other times in history. And the market crashed each of those times. So I, mean, I think we just end up, not every time we talk about this, we end <laughs> up in this like doomsday, like, oh, there's just nothing happening, and it's all going to crash down upon us. Well, the, the kind of interesting thing is the market can crash down upon us, but it doesn't mean doomsday. The market is just one set of assets. and. You know, that mean it might mean a recession. It might not. You know, it might not mean a recession. The market came down like crazy in uh, 2002, 2003, and came booming right back up again. So you know, That's true. things things can be all right. So um, 
I'm hoping that that happens, and I, I would love to see us have a nice rebalancing. And when we do, we're going to see some great companies go on sale. I, I, we're always going to be able to find something great. We just have to be patient. Yeah, we don't have to see the market destroy itself in order to do that. It just is a lot easier after a market crash. It is. It is easier. But I think the point here is to be unshakable or anti-fragile in that crash, and hopefully we can like not miss out on this upward part of it. That's, That's a little tricky. <laughs> <laughs> so this idea of anti-fragile, of course, comes from Nicholas Taleb, who wrote The Black Swan, and he wrote Anti-Fragile, and he wrote uh, mm -hmm. Fooled by Randomness. And the essence of this idea is that crisis creates opportunities for an anti-fragile portfolio, an anti-fragile tree, an anti-fragile anything. Meaning something that actually benefits from the crisis, right. not is not just strong, not just withstanding it, but right. actually supported and improves by the wind, by the crisis, by the calamity. Right. And what you're looking at with Monash Pabrite <clears throat> in this portfolio is an anti-fragile portfolio. Totally, totally. So he said, a great storm is coming, inevitably coming. It might be this year, it might be next year, it might be the year after, but it's coming. And since I don't know exactly when this crisis is gonna land on us, I'm setting up my portfolio to be anti-fragile so that when it does, I super benefit. Mm -hmm. And it will make up for all these years of not keeping up with the market. Now here's the thing though. These are very large investors right. by definition right. because otherwise they wouldn't be reporting to the SEC. Right. So as utterly small time investors, maybe there's stuff we can find to buy that they're not buying because like you said, I think a few podcasts ago, they can only go into large companies sure. usually because they have to have enough trading volume to support the amount of money they're moving in. Right. So someone. So I wonder if like some small companies are that the place they to go. wouldn't be able to go into without just driving the stock price way up. I wonder if that's a place where small investors could deploy some money. One hundred percent right in terms of a great place to focus for a couple of reasons. First, as you said, these guys have, buying in, into a small company, a little company with this much capital, means that um, if the company doubles in price, it's still just a rounding error on their entire portfolio, right? <laughs> right. So if, you, if you buy a $50 million company, let's say it's 50 million in the market cap, and you buy 20% of it, now you own $10 million of this thing, mm -hmm. and it doubles to 20 million, but you've got a billion dollar portfolio you just made ten million. Everyone's on. like, "Great, one percent." Yeah. So, <laughs> really good choice. <laughs> we don't care. Right, we don't care. So they're not going to be there. And the second thing is because the big guys aren't there, the analysts aren't following these companies, so they're not carefully reported. Oh, but and that's as a, a result of that, thing. you end up with a lot more volatility. Hmm. Things sneak up on people because they don't see it coming. It's not reported. No analysts are saying, "Hey, watch out." And then all of a sudden something happens and the stock price goes boom right to the moon or it goes boom right to the floor. Hmm. And you see this big swing as a result of events that are not reported. So if you are going to spend some time looking at companies, a once you get a little better at it, right, you start with larger companies because you're going to see the big guys in there. You get the cushion of knowing you're in there with a great investor. That's what I want for you. As you're learning this, get in there with a Pabrai 
or a spear. Make sure somebody's in there that's good at this because you don't want to think, oh, I'm looking at large cap stocks and I found this one and but no I, one else did. But I always think that. <laughs> that's not good. <laughs> that's not good thinking because they're very good at digging this stuff up. Now you may occasionally in a blue moon find a large cap company and it's been sold off like crazy because of some event and no, none of the big guys are buying in yet. Or they that are, the and case. we just don't know yet you because don't know of the yet delay. Because of the 90 day delay. Very true. So, um, so it's possible. It's totally possible. My rightness could be you vindicated. Are, yep, I've been ahead of these guys a couple the of times. Upon the filing. Exactly. It could happen. But probably not. I'll take your point. Probably not. But be a little concerned if you're the first. It's like I'm always convinced that I'm going to win the lottery. <laughs> like, I bought a lottery ticket for the first... I don't ever buy lottery tickets. And I bought one when the... I don't know. It was like $600 million. And like, everyone in the country was buying a lottery ticket. And I was like, if I buy one, I'm totally going to win. Oh, no oh, yeah. way. Oh, yeah. I'm so the opposite of that. <laughs> I guarantee you, if I buy a stock, I typically go into it assuming because I bought it, it's going to no, go down like a brick. but with the stock market, I do feel like that. It's, it's a strange thing between like zero control. So I feel like it's all luck. And I am like, like the gods must be smiling <laughs> upon me versus like, you must do your research and know all sorts of things. And then I'm like, oh, I'm totally going <laughs> to. It's like some sort of terrible anti-confidence situation. So I bought this lottery ticket, the first one I ever bought in my whole life. I didn't even know how to buy a lottery ticket. And then they announced the numbers. And I was like, oh my gosh, where am I going to be when I win? And then I like pulled up the numbers on the internet. And they were not the right numbers. No. Yeah. I can't even imagine you didn't get the right I numbers. I checked it about five times <laughs> <laughs> before I accepted that I hadn't won the lottery. What and did I, I teach you that I got you to this place? I have never bought one since well, then. Well, that's a good lesson then. Yeah. Well done. That's a good, good lesson. So I'm not a very good gambler. I really am really. The, the loss of capital is so much more painful to me than the gain of the winning. Oh, me too. Gambling it's, is not fun. It's brutal. So I, I was led by my own sort of inner nature to this sort of investing where, you know, we basically, you know, certainly not overly optimistic. I could almost say pessimistic. I could almost say, you know, I'm expecting bad things to happen when I invest. So I'm super hyper careful to be okay with that when it happens. And all of this feeds directly into following Warren Buffett. It, all it, it of this really feeds directly into, I want to say managing your emotions. Well, but that's, that's not, for sure. That's, yeah, but you say it like it's so obvious, but it's not so obvious. It's like, such it's an something that we thing. have to keep front of mind consciously. Like, this is a super emotional endeavor that yeah. we are doing yeah. for everyone. And by the way, it doesn't look like that from the outside. Everybody looks super cool, calm, confident. Yeah. We but, know exactly oh, what we're oh, doing man. until we jump off a building. Right. But we are all dealing with the same stuff. And I think it's really nice to explicitly say that because you, it can feel very isolating. It can feel very isolating and no one talks about it. No one talks about it. Oh, that's a really good insight. So let's, we're talking let's about stop it. There. Let's stop there. That's a good place to stop. Let's bring out our next investor. Let's bring out our next investor. Next time. Okay. I'm thinking, let's look at Guy. <laughs> Shall we? 
right. All right, let's peek it. <laughs> I feel a little bit bad for him. Oh, no. I mean, he's such a great investor. He's doing great. So let's take a look at his portfolio briefly, and let's talk a little bit more about the emotions of investing, the things you're going to run into out there when you start thinking about managing your own money. Number one thing being fear. Yeah. Um, and then the horrible discovery that you can have the greed button get hit as well. Totally. When you start to do it right and the, and the stock is going up, yeah, that greed thing kicks in. So these are all, emotions are bad with investing. We wanna be very rational about this. So we'll talk more about that next time. I'm not sure I agree that emotions are bad, but all we'll right. leave it there. Well, let's talk about that. Okay. Okay, until then, time to go play. Thanks See everybody, you guys. bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to investedpodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free, where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days. We don't sell anything, and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free. So come on over there and take a look at that. And by the way, as our lawyers want me to say, everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, and my opinion's right, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play.